Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to gather up, isn't it? I mean, it is good to gather up. I'm just saying. You know, um, the author of Hebrews, uh, in the ch- 10th chapter, he wrote and said, uh, Do not neglect gathering together regularly, as some are in the habit of doing, but come together regularly and stir each other up toward love and good deeds. And the reality is that uh, our Monday and our Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, th- th- those, those days, they, they uh, disrupt and dismantle the gospel because we, we face violence and we face uh, hurricanes and we face relational dynamics that are difficult and we face uh, people's mess and our own mess and we face shame and fear and struggle and circumstance and resource challenges and Throughout the week, as we encounter those things, they dismantle the truths of the gospel for us. We, we begin to, to forget God and, and, and feel distant from the realities of His beautiful truths. And then we gather up again every week, and, and we come to reconstruct the gospel truths, to re-engage in them, to sing about them to each other and to ourselves, to, to, to dig into God's revealed word so that we see the gospel come back together so that another Monday and another Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday can be encountered again with the truth of the gospel deeply embedded in our hearts and souls so that we might live worthy of the gospel and in the freedom of the gospel. It's good to gather, isn't it? It's good to gather, man. So, we are uh, in the process of reconstructing and re-encountering the gospel week after week as we travel through the book of Romans. Uh, The book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, He wrote it uh, in preparation of a move that he's planning to make from Antioch to Rome as his headquarters. And so he wants, without a shadow of a doubt, to be able to unpack the intricacies and the simplicities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive story of God, for the church in Rome so that there will be no questions, so that he does not have to come and sit for months and years dialoguing through it, that he has a document to say, Everything you need to know about the Gospels in this document, did you not read it? Let's go back to it. And we are the recipients of that document. How awesome is that? So that we can also, like the church in Rome is experiencing in this this beautiful reading of the book of Romans, we can experience the beautiful wonder of the Gospel as we travel through it. So we've come through, obviously, The first eight chapters moving toward what was the crescendo of those first eight chapters. Chapter eight where he says, you know, because of everything we've learned, chapters one through eight, we come to the end of eight. And what does it say? We are confident now that nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. We belong to him, period, end of story, because of his work, his grace, his love, his mercy. We're his. That's a secure place to stand, man. And then, coming into 9, remember 9, 10, and 11, which is where we find ourselves now, the question that that context was asking, uh, which was a mix of ethnic Israel, Jewish people, and Gentiles, the ethnic Israel group of the people, the Jewish people were saying, okay, hold on, our Jewish friends that have rejected the Messiah, uh, they, they still belong, Right? And then Paul had to go through and go, uh, no, and unpack why that was a big no, because the rejection of Jesus, the Messiah, uh, is a no then. And so chapter 9, what does God say? 
you have no idea what justice is. You have no idea what's fair or unfair. You have no idea what's true or not true. You have no idea how things work. You, were you there when the universe began? Were you there when, it, well, you know, do, do, you, do you have any idea? I'm the potter, you're the clay. So it was kind of just a very gentle, but a definite way of God saying, you're two. I'm an adult. So I hear you scream and shout, throw a temper tantrum. It's not fair, it's not fair. But you have no idea. Thankfully, I do. I know exactly what's going on. I am the embodiment of good and fair and right and just. So in some ways, you're just going to have to trust me because I know what you don't know about history and about all things and about people. I just, so I've got this. I've got this. It was a good place for us to land. I've got this, God says, you're too. And then chapter 10, in its simplicity, you know what? Though you are too, you get to be a big part of my story. You get to participate in it. How? You are a recipient of my grace and my mercy. So though you don't know much, there are some things you need to know. Here's what you need to know. You are a recipient of God's grace and mercy. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And that ought to bring us to our knees. And then here's the other thing you need to know. Not only are you a recipient of God's grace and mercy, but you are a participant in the ongoing expansion of God's grace and mercy into a dying world, a dead world, and into the human story. You get to carry the gospel out. And how does he put it in simplicity in chapter 10? Sometimes the beauty of the truths we extract is in the simplicity, isn't it? If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. I don't have to explain that. It's just beautiful. They will hear through the hearing of the word of God. Otherwise, they will not hear. And it is through hearing that they come to faith. It's not complicated. It's just simple. It's just beautiful. You get to carry the gospel message through the word of God to all tribes, tongues, and nations. And they will hear. And it is through the hearing of the word that faith is born. Wow, so simple. That's what we ended last week. Now we're going to get into a passage that if you're just reading casually through the book of Romans, it's another one you skip, right? Because you start reading it and you're like, ah, it's way too complex. I don't understand what it means. It makes no sense. And so you just, you just nosedive straight at 12 again. You're like, just get to 12. Just, ah! But we are not going to skip. Because sometimes the beauty of the gospel resides in the simplicity of a verse or a passage. And sometimes... It resides when we dig and mine through the complexities of Scripture and we discover the beauty of the gospel because of the complexity of Scripture. And the passage we're about to encounter is one we're going to go mining through. And when we mine, oh my, what we are going to find. So buckle up and let's turn with, uh, in our Bibles together to the book of Romans. So we're going to be going to Romans chapter 10 which is where we were last time. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, it's page 1048, Romans chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be in verse 18. So if you're using one of your own Bibles or a smart device, Romans chapter 10, verse 18. But I just want to remind you where we are in context with verse 17 because it sets the pace for where we go next. So look at verse 17. <clears throat> so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, okay? So where, where does Paul end us there? In the simplicity of our faith and our belief and our confession and our being saved and our participation in it and then our carrying of the gospel, he says, go into all the world because this faith I am affecting comes through the hearing of the word and the hearing is through the preaching of the word, so go preach it, right? What an awesome invitation. 
Now remember, before we read the next verse, which is where we begin our passage, what is the greater context of chapter 9, 10, and 11? It's where 9 started with the ethnic Israel that had come to know Jesus asking, my, my, my kinsmen who have rejected the Messiah, do they still belong? And Paul is still in the process of answering that question all the way through 9, 10, and 11 because that is the grand question. Is God fair if he rejects ethnic Israel? Okay, those who reject the Messiah. And so right now, as we get to the end of 10, and you hear it is through the hearing of the word that you come to faith, the very first thing that the Jewish people that know Jesus in the church in Rome listening to this would go is they go like this, oh, oh. So our, our kinsmen just haven't heard yet. Like they haven't heard the message of Jesus. They're still kind of stuck in the old message. So if they just hear it, then all will be well. So it's almost like this relief out of nine. Like, oh, you weren't like saying they don't belong. You were just saying they haven't heard yet. Oh, good. So we can just go out and tell them. So what Paul's about to do is he's about to unpack a reality of God's relationship with ethnic Israel. And through doing that, he is going to show us, the human race, a version, uh, uh, or not a version, a depth of his faithfulness that is going to be mind-blowing. So let's take a look at what happens next. So we come out of 17, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? So Paul, again, through the Holy Spirit, is, is, is already on top of where the next question arises. And we're talking about ethnic Israel here because of what's going to come in a minute. So the question, did ethnic Israel reject the Messiah because they have not heard about the Messiah and about the story? They haven't heard the message of Christ. That's the problem. Look what he says here. Indeed, they have. So there's our answer. That's not going to be an excuse because they have heard and they have rejected. So there's this clarity. It's not just a naivety that's causing them not to buy into who Jesus is. They have heard and they have rejected. So look what he says. They have heard four. Now he's going to answer it for us. Four. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. See, there's the answer. It's so simple. Now you know why they've heard. And you're all sitting there going, that makes no sense. Like, how do you answer a question like this? It's ridiculous. Oh, well, it's only ridiculous because of the context in which we live. You see, uh, in the time of Christ, in the time of Paul, and, and even to this day, to, to an extent, in the Jewish culture, little Jewish boys and girls would go to school at the synagogue and their schooling for a number of their first early schooling years was to study and to memorize the law, which was the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Read Leviticus and you will start going ballistic. And they memorized it, right? So they memorized Set to memory, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By the time they were entering into their preteen and teen years, they will have memorized not only the first five books of the law, but they will have memorized the Psalms, the Proverbs, many of the prophets, large portions of the stories coming out of the Old Testament. In fact, they would have memorized probably in excess of 70 or 80% of the Old Testament. Not studied, memorized and studied. So, in a culture that consumed with the scriptures, 
what they lived, what they breathed, what they knew, what they related to their day-to-day were the stories of Scripture and the principles of Scripture. We are a culture of movies, of entertainment. We are not a culture of Scripture. We are a culture that finds our relatability in the entertainment industry. We watch movies, we watch TV programs, and it is in those spaces that we relate. And so now we can say things about movies and it creates context for us. See, in the Old Testament, if you said a verse from anywhere in the Old Testament, for a kid who was Jewish, growing up Jewish, by the time they're an adult, you say the verse... And it creates for them an immediate context. They know exactly where that verse comes from. They know exactly the context. They know exactly its intent. So without writing four paragraphs, you say one verse and and everybody goes, I know what you're trying to say. The same as what we do. We just do it with movies, right? I'll be back. Oh, you got it. You had me at hello. Oh, yeah. Well, at least we'll still have Paris. Oh, baby. Bring it on, right? I mean, how about this one? Marriage. That blessed assurance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We know where that goes, right? Yeah. You killed my father. Prepared to die. See, it doesn't matter what we do, right? It doesn't matter what we do. We throw these little lines out, and it's not the line that you catch. It's the entire movie. It's the entire scene. It's the entire context. I say one line, and your mind creates an entire storyline by my one line. That's what Paul is doing. He's answering the questions to ethnic Israel in the church by one-liners from the Old Testament that create immediate scenes and answer the question. So this particular one-liner that we just read their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world is from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 has a very particular context. I'm going to turn there. You don't have to, but you're welcome to. I'm going to read it to you. Listen to this. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And here, verse 4, that's what you just heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. You see, this particular quote brings to bear what Psalm 19 is saying, and that is this, that God has already revealed himself through general revelation. Now, what's fascinating about this is in Romans chapter 1, Paul used this very evidence to give the Gentiles no excuse for not knowing God, even though they had no prophets, no law, no revelation, no, no, no nothing. He said they still should have known because God makes himself known through his creation. And, and so he's actually using the same argument that the Jewish people in the church were amening in chapter 1 about the Gentiles. He's now using uh, with the Jewish people that have, that have rejected the Messiah. But what Paul is doing here is he's not simply saying they only had general revelation like the Gentiles. He's actually making somewhat of a point here to say, like the Gentiles, they have no excuse. But come on, let's get real. It didn't stop at general revelation for them, did it? 
Oh no, they had the exodus from Egypt. They had Mount Sinai after the splitting of the Red Sea and a big giant pillar of fire and a cloud led them. They got the law. Moses spoke to them. They had the prophets. They had the Psalms and the Proverbs. They had the kings speaking God's wisdom of them. They had more revelation than we know what to do with. They should have known in every way, shape, or form who the Messiah was and that the Messiah was coming and how this was going to work. So you don't get to say, oh, they just haven't heard yet. No, no, they've heard and they know. And why is Paul doing this? Because again, he's trying to demonstrate clearly God is not unfair. God is not unfair. Well, it's just so unfair. No, it's not. These are, a, these are a people that have rejected God. So he has every reason to reject them all, to reject all of ethnic Israel, because ethnic Israel rejected God. Watch this. Watch this. Oh, he goes, he goes further. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Oh, that's what it is. See, they heard, they had the general revelation and the, the prophets and all this stuff, but they just, didn't, they just didn't catch the clarity of all of this. And then he answers it again with a quote out of the Old Testament. You always know that because in the Bible it has little quotations. You can generally go, oh, this is a movie quote, but like Old Testament version, okay? So here we go, watch. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So this is out of the book of Deuteronomy now. And Moses um, is speaking in the book of Deuteronomy. The people have been absolutely ridiculous. They have worshipped other gods. They have rejected God again. I mean, this is literally, you remember what happened at Mount Sinai and the whole law and all that? I mean, literally while Moses is getting revelation from God, they're building golden calves. I mean, it, it, it is unbelievable what the people were doing. So God responds to the people and he says to them in Deuteronomy through Moses, look, here's how this is going to roll. If you want to understand how you are affecting our relationship I am a jealous God and you have made me jealous. Now, when God says things like this, just by the way, in case you're like, oh, God's like a Greek God. He's petty and he gets jealous and mad and he shoots lightning. That's not what he does at all. God constantly reveals himself to us in ways that we can relate to. That's why God gives us these relationships and then ties these relationships to how our relationship functions with him. We all know what it is to be child or parent. We may hate our parents, uh, but the reality is we understand the dynamic of a relationship of what a parent should be and what a child should be. And what does God say? I am your parent. I am your father. We all understand the relationship between husband and wife, bride and groom. And then God goes, that love relationship that's so powerful and dynamic, I am the groom, you are the bride church. We all understand the relationship that we have between our head and our body. You remove the head, what happens to the body? It's okay, you can say it. It dies very, very quickly, right? Jesus is the head. We are the body. So there's relational dynamics that are described in ways that help us understand our dynamic with God and understand God's character toward us, even though God functions in spaces we cannot possibly imagine. So what God often does is he says, like you feel jealousy when somebody hurts you, like that kind of emotional connection and love that, that demonstrates how much you love a person, that also is how much I love you. So he says to, to Israel, 
you are, you are making me jealous. And so here's, here's the deal. At some point, you're going to feel this as well because I also am going to find you to be quite jealous because you know all those nations out there that you hate right now that you think I'm against? P.S. I'm not against them. And I'm going to bring them in when they don't belong and you're going to get all bent out of shape and go, I can't believe you're doing that. And you're going to reject me because I'm bringing them in. Moses said that to them. Do you know what the primary reason is that the ethnic Israel during Jesus' time rejected the Messiah? It's kind of crazy. Here it is. See, they were waiting for a Messiah who would come in, overthrow the Roman government, set up Israel as the ultimate ruler over all the nations, and once and for all, Israel would never again be un- under captivity, never again be captivated by any nation, and they would rule by, with, with the Messiah on the throne and, and sit over all nations. And when Jesus came, did he overthrow Rome and set Israel up as the giant, awesome king nation that would rule over all the pagans? Nope. He overthrows sin and death for all nations. And ethnic Israel didn't like that. And they went, uh-uh, this can't be our Messiah. Our Messiah would never hang out with the Gentiles. Our Messiah would never be for the pagans. And so they rejected Jesus. And here's what Paul just said. Maybe they didn't understand who the Messiah was going to be. Oh, no. They understood just fine. Moses said it. I mean, Moses, you can go back to the very beginning and Moses said this is how it was going to go. Now, again, Paul's doing this. Moses wasn't the only one that said it. It's been said multiple times throughout the Old Testament. He's just again saying, if we could just, let's just pull one. I mean, from the very beginning, Moses said it. In fact, just in case the people go, well, I missed the Moses quote. He goes, okay, okay, well, let's see what Isaiah said then. I mean, Isaiah said some stuff. Look at this. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I love that that he puts that. I mean, Isaiah said some bold things. So just buckle up. You think Moses was bad. Wait for Isaiah. This is out of Isaiah 65. So again, a passage in Isaiah 65. Look at this. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So Isaiah made it clear that when the Messiah comes, he is going to be for who? all tribes, tongues, and nations, and that they will be invited into the story. So if you say to me, ethnic Israel just misunderstood who the Messiah was going to be, and that's why they rejected him, that is not true. They are rejecting him because they don't want that Messiah. They want to be the only awesome people, and that's not going to happen. Now look at this. Watch this. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So this is in Isaiah 65 where he literally says, not only am I inviting in all tribes, tongues, and nations into my story, but I have held out my hand of mercy and my hand of grace toward ethnic Israel longer and in more tangible ways than to any other nation on this planet. So here's what he's actually saying. If we're going to have an argument about whether or not God has every reason to reject ethnic Israel as a people group who have rejected him, he has every reason, does he not? They heard, they knew, they had more revelation than all the other nations put together. He showed them more longevity, more patience, more mercy, more grace than all nations put together, and yet it was all the nations that came running to him when the Messiah showed up, and the, the ethnic Israel rejecting that Messiah because they wanted to be in charge. What should you do with ethnic Israel? Reject them. Let them be. Leave them to themselves. 
Let them go do their thing. See how well that goes. It's their turn to be the Gentiles, isn't it? It's their turn. That's where you could be landing now. And that's exactly what Paul wants for us, is for us to go, wow. Well, no, I mean, really, he, he should. He should. So let's take a look. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask you then, has God rejected his people? There it is. There's the big question, isn't it? Should he reject his people? Yes. I mean, you guys don't want to say it, do you? I don't, I don't know. He's, he's really kind. <laughs> By justice alone, he should reject them. They're an insanity, right? Has he rejected his people? Look at this. Look at this. By no means. Oh my goodness, by no means. He hasn't rejected his people. Okay, how do, how do we know? I mean, it sounds great, but there's this group of people that don't know Jesus that are ethnic Israel. And Look, look, look. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul, this is, this is what Paul does. It's beautiful. He says, okay, should God have rejected ethnic Israel as a whole because they, ethnic Israel, stood against him when it mattered most? Because they rejected him when it didn't matter at all. Because they were an adulterous people. Because he held out his hand of grace and mercy for centuries. And they kept behaving as though people who didn't love him. Should he reject them and move on to the Gentiles? Should that have been the story? Yes. But he did not. How do I know, Paul says? Because I am part of ethnic Israel. And he didn't reject me. See, if he's rejecting all of ethnic Israel, he should reject me too. And of all the men who can say that, Paul is most qualified. Why? Do you remember how he came to know Jesus? He was walking down the road to Damascus to go have a, a quiet lunch with some friends. And suddenly it dawned on him that Jesus was indeed Lord. And he bowed down and said, God, I have finally come to my senses and I want you to be my savior. No, no, no. That's the wrong story. He was on his way to Damascus to murder people that followed Jesus after murdering Stephen who followed Jesus. And Jesus showed up and said, <clears throat> wrong team, bud. <laughs> wrong team. You should have read more carefully. And then he struck him dead. No, no. Also wrong story. <laughs> should have been the story. But instead he didn't. He rescued Paul, brought him to his senses. And Paul followed Jesus. See, here's what Paul says. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus found me. And he rescued me and he should never have because I am part of ethnic Israel. So if you think Jesus has abandoned ethnic Israel, he hasn't because I'm part of it. And then he uses these two names, Abraham and Benjamin. Why? It's actually super cool because theoretically, to prove that he was part of bloodline ethnic Israel, the people might have been able to say of Paul, well, you think you're part of Israel, but maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you don't have a bloodline. Maybe that's why he rescued you because you're not actually part of it. But he goes, no, no, I know I'm part of it. And here's how I know. Obviously the line of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Why Benjamin? Do you remember fi 561 years or so before the time of Christ and then uh, 700 or so years before that, uh, well, 720 years before that, the, the nation of Israel was one nation under Solomon, the last king that uh, ruled over one nation. After Solomon, who was David's son, the nation split into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom and southern kingdom never got along. 
Some of the tribes went northern kingdom. Some of the tribes went southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was overthrown 700 plus years before the time of Jesus. And that northern kingdom was demolished. Then it wasn't until about five, a little over 500 BC that the southern kingdom was overthrown. In the southern kingdom, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the tribes as part of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was so scattered that if you belonged to one of those tribes, you legitimately couldn't use Ancestry.com to go back too far. Now, they didn't have it back then, but you know, whatever version of that they had back then, if you went back, it would get muddled, and you could say, if you were part of the northern tribes, you really wouldn't know if you legitimately were bloodline. But if you were part of the southern tribes, in this case, one of them being Benjamin, then you could trace your lineage all the way back. So Paul is saying, in case you think I might not be ethnic Israel, blood, I'm, a, I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. So Ancestry.com takes me all the way back. All the way back. And if God rescued me, then God is not against ethnic Israel, is he? He's not against ethnic Israel because he rescued me. Now, Paul's going to tell us another Old Testament story that is going to solidify this point of God's faithfulness to his people beyond anything you can imagine. Watch this. This is so awesome. Okay, so look at this. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay, so here's the clarity. God should have rejected his people, but he didn't reject his people. Take a look at this. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Okay, so that's out of Kings 19. In the book of Kings chapter 19, there's a story that unfolds. And this is the story, you know, where everything was going ballistic in Israel and Baal was being worshipped and Jezebel was this powerful, crazy uh, psychopath and, and, and she was trying to kill everybody. And if you didn't, if you didn't worship Baal, then, then you'd get wiped out. And so all of Israel, uh, wanting to preserve their lives and, and frankly, just being an adulterous people, they all began to worship Baal. And so then God would send prophets to go tell them, bad idea bad idea. Don't do that. And what did they do to the prophets? They killed him. They killed him. They're like, we don't like you. Boom, dead. So Elijah's one of the prophets. So he goes out and they reject him and they're going to kill him too, right? And so Elijah comes to God and he says to God in Kings 19, listen, here's the deal. I mean, ethnic Israel's behaving terribly badly. They've killed all of your prophets. They've ignored your word. They want to kill me. They're after me now. But despite all of that, I, I feel you should have mercy on them. I feel you should love them and care for them. And if they take my life as a, as a means of your mercy, I am content in giving it. No, no, he didn't do any of that. You know what he did? Kings 19, he came to God and said, kill them. <laughs> kill them all. They've destroyed your altars. They've killed your prophets. And now they want to kill me. And before they get here, wipe them out. I mean, they deserve your judgment. I love prophets. Prophets are very sort of like judgment-oriented. Truth is a big deal to them. Grace, not so much. And so, you know, they, they, they go in and they're like, just look at them. Bunch of pagans. Show them. And then we can just start with me, Elijah, again, and we'll be fine. What was God's answer to Elijah? You think God's answer to Elijah was, you know, you're right. These people are insane. Wiping them out. Now, what you're about to hear begins to speak to God's grace to the human race in deep, beautiful, and abiding ways. Look at this. Look at this. But what is God's reply to him? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
God's answer to Isaiah, I mean to Elijah. I will keep for myself out of my people always a remnant of faithful so that I might be faithful because they are faithful because I made them faithful. See, this is so crazy. He didn't say, I, I, I moved back and forth across the land and I found 7,000 awesome faithful people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. I don't know how they did it. They should have, but you know, thank goodness they trusted me. And I, because of their faithfulness, I am going to be faithful. No, he says, I have what? Kept for myself 7,000. Do you hear the language in that? I have made 7,000 faithful, even though they had no means in of themselves to remain faithful. I have made them faithful. And because I've made them faithful and they're now faithful, I'm going to be faithful. God is faithful because he makes his people faithful so he can be faithful. This is a work of God. And so here's what Paul's saying. Don't you understand? God should have abandoned the whole of ethnic Israel during the time of Baal. But he kept for himself 7,000 faithful. And he was faithful to them. And that remnant became the future of Israel. That kept moving forward. So that the Messiah would come from them. So that he could be faithful to all people groups. All tribes, tongues, and nations. And he has always done this. To the present day, he is still doing it. He keeps for himself, outside of the whole of ethnic Israel, a remnant of those who are faithful those who respond to Christ and to that remnant, he is faithful so that he is faithful to ethnic Israel. Watch. He actually says it here. So too, verse five, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, he's using the story of Elijah to show that even those 7,000 that were kept for God, it was not a work of their own, was it? It was a work of God to make them faithful so that they would be faithful so that he could be faithful to them. And he says, as it is presently in Paul's time, so he still does that. He creates for himself out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We'll get to that in a second. But for now, ethnic Israel, a remnant of faithful ones so that he can be faithful to them and so continue the redemptive story. But he's very clear here in this verse that it is an act of grace. Now watch this. But... Verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works or merit. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The second we take the grand rescue of a human soul, the grand story of redemption, and we move God out of the one who produces that, and we move humanity in by our by our choices or wisdom or clarity or, or faithfulness, we somehow solicit salvation from God, then we remove grace from the table. Then it is not grace, it is work. It is merit. It is human. And grace is no longer grace. Grace is only grace when it is exclusively a work of God, where my very faithfulness or my faith is a work of God and his faithfulness to me is the result of my faith that he gave to me and birthed in me so I could give it to him so he could be faithful. So I am saved by his grace and my faith, which is his faith because he is faithful. Therefore, it is not a work. It is a grace and grace remains grace. What then? Verse 7. Israel failed, ethnic Israel as a whole, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
So here's what he's saying. Ethnic Israel as a whole were pursuing right relationship with God through circumcision, the covenants, and the law. But they failed to obtain it. But those that had been kept for God out of ethnic Israel, the elect, they obtained it by faith. You with me so far? Now, those that do not obtain it by faith, but try to obtain it by works. Let's see what goes on here. Coming back to how this functions. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So this is another quote out of the Old Testament. I'd love to spend some time digging into it, but we don't have it. And so I'm not going to. I need to leave some for you to study. But what's beautiful about this is this quote, uh, I will say this, uh, sort of uh, encapsulates a number of things. One, it speaks to God's silence with the prophets where God went silent. Remember from the end of the Old Testament uh, in Malachi all the way to the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus arrives on the scene, there was 400 years of silence. So God is saying, look, during a certain period of time, I went silence. And in that silence, their pursuit of self-righteousness increased tremendously. And they sought me the wrong way. But that was all part of God's grand story. So we, again, we sit here, two-year-olds, and we go, that sounds unfair. God could have just, but what you don't know yet. I'm going to get ahead of myself, so sorry I'm cheating a bit. This is for, for another week, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give you clues just so you don't go home panicking that God's a mean old man. Watch this, right? Because of God's beautiful story with Israel and the hardening of their hearts and their jealousy toward the Gentiles, that was what affected God's work to bring the Gentiles into the story. Remember Moses? And when the Gentiles come into the story, what we'll find out in the rest of 11 is that through the Gentiles coming in, ethnic Israel gets jealous. And in their jealousy over time, they return to God. God will always use our insanity to weave into his redemptive story to be who he needs to be for all that he is after. It is unbelievable and we have so little clarity of how God works, but yet he shows us enough to know that he is good, he is right, and he is for us. Now watch. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is out of um, the Old Testament again where David is speaking. And Paul now uses this not as a look back at the Old Testament, but as a present reality saying this. Those who are pursuing God through self-righteousness, their own self-righteousness will become the weight on their back and bend their backs forever. It will become the snare and trap into which they fall. And instead of finding self-righteousness, it will blind them. See, the very nature of the pursuit of God can never be through a self-righteousness or a legalism. And it can never be found in lawlessness or self-governance. When we are lawless or govern ourselves, that is demonic and it is binding and it is a burden to the human soul. When you run from God, you run into death, into burden, into bondage. But when you try to solicit God through self-righteousness or legalism, that is also demonic. And it is a self-righteousness that leads us to a snare that binds us. The only thing that sets free is the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing him as savior, believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, and then following him as Lord, trusting his ways over your own. That is freedom. That is not legalism. That is not lawlessness. That is freedom. And here he says, those who are not pursuing God through Jesus 
Whatever means they are using will become their snare and their burden and the weight on their backs. Where does this leave us? There's so much more to travel through, but that's for another day. But this is where it leaves us today. We are recipients of God's grace without a doubt. We are participants in God's grace in carrying the story of the gospel out into the world. And here's what God just told us. Watch this. In the smallest story, the one of Elijah in in Kings 19, did God keep for himself a remnant of that particular generation of Israelites so that he could remain faithful to his people? Yes. In the story of Israel as a whole, has God always kept for himself a remnant of faithful Israelites so that he could be faithful to them? Will he keep doing it today? Will he keep doing it until the end of time? Yes. Should he have rejected the people of Israel in in Kings 19? Yes, did he? No. No. Should he have rejected the people of Israel across the board? Yes, he should have, but he didn't. The human race, the human race, should he have left us alone before the flood and not wiped us out and let us wipe ourselves out and not pulled Noah out and preserved the human story? Yes, he should have left us. Should he left us at the Tower of Babel to to implode in ourselves and murder each other until there was nothing left of us? Yes. Should he have left us Gentiles to ourselves throughout history because we were pagan adulterers of God? Yes. In Revelation chapter 7, when John turns around, does he say, and I saw before me a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Has God kept for himself a people, a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Before Jesus? Yes. I don't know how. How he kept for himself a people from every horrid nation that was against Israel, I don't know how. But are they represented in the kingdom of heaven? He has remained faithful to every people group, to every tongue, to every nation. So when he sends us out into our workplaces into our neighborhoods, into our city, into our world, into the Amazon jungles and into Indonesia and off to Europe and into South America and up into the north and across the U.S. to go preach the gospel. Should we fear anything? Because from every tribe, tongue, and nation we encounter when we preach the gospel, are there some that will know Jesus? Yes. And are we the carriers of the word of God? Because when it is preached, it is heard. When it is heard, it is birthing faith. Yes. Should we go? Yes. Yes. To where? Everywhere. Because there will never be a tribe or a tongue or a nation we will encounter that there will not be some who are waiting to be saved. Because God is faithful and God is gracious and we are his people and we carry his kingdom and his power and his freedom and his redemption. And so we go fearlessly and we go because we can, because we should, because we must, because we belong. Oh, God is good, is he not? Oh, God is good. Let's pray. God, your faithfulness to every tribe, tongue, and nation is unthinkable, extraordinary, and should not be. Justice demands that we are all left to be damned. And yet, You fulfill justice in the great redemptive work of your life, death, and resurrection. And then in that work, past, present, and future, you redeem from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation a people for yourself. 
so that you can show yourself faithful, not just to ethnic Israel, not just to the Gentiles, but to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, including ethnic Israel for all of time, including the Gentiles for all of time, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. We go now, God, with confidence into our world, preaching the gospel through our lives and our words, because we know that in every space, from every place, you have kept for yourself a people and you have sent us to go and awaken them to the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. God, we bend our knees to you as we consider the fact that we are recipients of your grace. And we rise to our feet and leave this place boldly as we consider that we are participants in your grace. Make us a people who love one another well, who follow you with deep trust, and who boldly proclaim the freedom that is your gospel to those around us, not as judges holding up billboards and telling the nations how pagan they are, but as those who travel in grace, in mercy, in love, to say freedom, freedom, freedom is yours. Come, follow Jesus. Lead us on, Spirit of God, and remind us every day of the gospel and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray.